a whale, a fish, him being swallowed by it, right? And so what is, what is it about the book of Jonah? Is it a tail of a whale or is it a whale of a tail? Who knows, right? But as you're finding your way to the book of Jonah, it's a very small book, probably about two pages in my Bible. So if you need to go to the table of contents in the front to find the page number a little bit faster, go ahead. But we'll wait on you. But Jonah, he was a prophet of God. He was a prophet of God who spoke for the Lord, God of Israel, during the time of Jeroboam II. He was between, he was right after Elisha and sometime before Amos. And the first, the first that we hear about the prophet Jonah is found in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. Where, uh, where he was serving under the king um, Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam, speaking of Jeroboam II, is talking about him as he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which had been spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath -hefer. So this was, um, you don't know a whole lot about Jonah outside of the book of Jonah. And as you don't know a whole lot about Jeroboam II and his reign um, uh, as, as he was king. We do know that he followed in the footsteps of Jer Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who was sinful. And he did not lead the Israel in the way that, uh, that God would have saw fit. He did things that, were, um, that he saw good, that were in his own eyes. And, um, but, however, God did use Jeroboam II to restore and to re-empower the children of Israel during that time. So that's what we know outside of the book of Jonah. So what can we find out about Jonah and what's, what's his background? Well, we understand that he was a prophet. He was native to gath which you may know it best as Galilee. That is where his hometown was. That's the native uh, place where he was from. As I said, he was a prophet after Elisha, but before Amos in the years between 793 and 753 B.C. And, and what we find out in the very first couple of verses is that Jonah, not only was he speaking for the Lord to the children of Israel, but he was called to be a missionary to the great city of Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, which was the enemy of the children of Israel. And not only were they an enemy, but they were enemies who were making their way down towards them and were wanting and looking for a fight. Now, when we look at the book of Jonah, it's not very surprising that the story of Jonah is ridiculed by skeptics as a myth. It is regarded by even some scholars as a legend or a parable. But however, what we understand is that Jonah, we understand from the outside source of the book of Jonah, we do know that he was a prophet um, during the time of Jeroboam II. And we know it's not a parable because Jonah actually existed and he has a name. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a parable to illustrate some kind of spiritual truth. And the, the Jews accept this book as historical. I accept this book as historical too. So if you're, trying, if you're kind of rolling around in your head, where is he going with this? I do believe it's true. But however, the greatest thing that we have is that Jesus truly confirmed Jonah and the account that we read in the book of Jonah. What, what Jesus said whenever um, the scribes and Pharisees answered them, they wanted to see a sign. He, Jesus answered them and said, he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this, with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, greater than Jonah is here. So not only did Jesus confirm that Jonah existed, Jesus confirmed and spoke to the truth about Jonah being swallowed by a big fish and being there for three days and three nights, just as Jesus was three days and three nights in the grave and he rose again. And not only did he, t- did he testify to the existence of Jonah and the account of him being swallowed by a great fish, but Jesus also testified to the account that Jonah did go to Nineveh and he preached to Nineveh and they repented. And he said that that generation of Noah in Nineveh will be able to stand and condemn you in, this con- in, the, in the generation in which Jesus was living. So yes, it is a confirmed story. So when we read the book of, of Jonah, we can read it and understanding and believing that, yes, it is a true historical account. Yes, the fact that Jonah survived inside of a fish for three days and three nights goes beyond what we can understand as natural forces upon this earth, and it can only be explained by the miraculous hand of God. But if you start to, to, to read throughout the book of Jonah, you will find, uh, not Noah, but Jonah, the, the book of Jonah, you will see the miraculous hand of God working over and over and over again where a supernatural, infinite being who's po- above all things and more powerful than all things is, is, is engaged with his creation in the book of Jonah. Because I want to tell you, when it comes to miraculous works, if the very first book of, or the first verse of the Bible is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, If that is true, that makes everything that we read throughout Genesis through Revelation at least possible. Because if we have a great God who can create this world in which we know and we live out of absolutely nothing, it's not far and above him or it's not a far stretch to say, well, he can actually reach into his creation and do whatever he wants to with it. So it's not an impossibility of the things that we read here in the book of Jonah. It is a great, it's a great story. Um, but however, on the, on the surface, what we all tend to remember is that one verse in chapter 1, verse 17, where he does get swallowed by the fish and he's there for three days and three nights. However, the overall story is not about that. It's not about Jonah and the fish it's, or the well. I don't care what you want to call him. There's, a, there's an intellectual discussion over that, whether it was a fish or whether it was a well. It doesn't really matter, does it? But however... Um, it's not about Jonah and a fish. It's about God and his servant. It's about God and his compassion for the world. It is about God and, and, um, um, and his graciousness and his loving kindness and his corrective hand and his sovereignty. And we'll see that very, very, um, very, very plainly as we go through the book of Jonah. Now, we're not going to be able to get through the entire book of Jonah today, probably just the first chapter. But as we go through it, we're going to briefly go through chapter 1 and kind of highlight a few points, and then we're going to kind of go back and we'll look at the overall context of what we're looking at and see what we can derive and what kind of spiritual truths that, we can, uh, that can be revealed through the Scripture. You ready? Okay, you ready? All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, verse 1, chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now what we see here in the very beginning, who is speaking? God. Who is he speaking to? He is speaking to Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of God. And as a prophet of God who has spoke the 
spoke the word of God to the children of Israel, do you think it's possible or do you think it is highly likely that he could recognize the voice of the Lord? Absolutely. So I believe that whenever Jonah heard this command to go to Nineveh and preach to that city, there was no confusion as to who was telling him to do it. He understood and knew that God was speaking to him, and he was calling him to be a missionary to go to the the enemy country of Assyria, to the capital city of Nineveh, and preach to them because their wickedness had come before God. So when I come to Jonah, knowing who's speaking and knowing his position as a prophet of God, we would expect a prophet of the Lord to walk in obedience when it comes to preaching the truth. But as we all understand and know, we've heard this story very, very, um, very, very often. Verse 3, we see Jonah not arising to take and packing his bags to get to Nineveh. But in verse 3, it says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, which Joppa is just a short little hip, a hop, skip, and a jump to Joppa. It was a port city there to get on a boat to go to Tarshish. So as he is going to Tarshish, well, what you see here is in Joppa, very, very close to his hometown where he's from, hopping down to Joppa, he was looking for a boat to go to Tarshish as opposed to going to Nineveh. Now, which one is the easiest route? Nineveh, by a long shot, 550 miles versus 2,500 miles. Now, we understand why Jonah did not want to preach to the Ninevites. He did not like them. He hated them. He did not want to preach to them. And as we can understand and know, as we look into the book uh, or further into the book of Jonah, we know why he doesn't want to preach to them. Because if he preaches the message of repentance and they really repent, God knows that he will relent from doing harm to them. And he didn't want that for them. He had a disdain for these people, even so much that he did not want, the, he did not want God's grace to, to fall upon the city of Nineveh. So he is trying to get away from, from, uh, from having to do this. And Jonah arose and he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Why? to escape from the presence of the Lord. He is trying everything he possibly can to get out of having to do this, to disqualify himself from being the man that God is going to send to Nineveh. He is maybe trying to remove himself um, geographically as far away as he possibly could understand so God would maybe speak to someone else and send someone else instead of him. He doesn't want to do this. And I've heard, I've heard a few of my, of my pastor friends, they have testimonies of this, where they refuse to answer the call to go into the ministry. It's something that they completely run from, and they try to disqualify themselves over and over and over again to get somebody to, else to do it. They try to dirty themselves up to make them somebody that God does not want to use anymore. And a testimony, I think I may have shared this one with you guys in the past, but a man who I love and who's, who's impacted my life in the ministry, his testimony was just that. He was trying to disqualify himself. He, would do, he got into drugs and he got into alcohol. But every time that he would sober up, that voice in his mind was preach, preach, and preach. He tried to remove himself from the presence of God to get someone else to do it because he did not want to answer that call. Actually, his, his testimony is, is one Sunday morning he came to church, miserable from running from the God. But he said that morning, God spoke to his heart and he honestly felt 
He didn't hear an audible voice or anything, but he honestly felt that if he did not surrender his life at that moment, that God was going to kill him. And he surrendered his life. He said, okay, I'm giving up. But however, we see Jonah doing the exact same thing. He is, God has called him to be a missionary to the enemy uh, country, and he just does not want to do this. So he hops on the, on, on the ship with the intention of removing himself from the presence of God. Now, this is an absolute refusal to do what God has called him to do. This is complete and total disobedience from, from Jonah. God has called him specifically, spoke very clearly, and he says, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. And he takes off and he goes towards Tarshish. And he makes his arrangements. Now he tries, now why does, he, why does he get on the boat? He wants to get on the boat to go to Tarshish to get away from the presence of an all-present being. He's trying to run from God. In verse 4, as he jumps on the ship to get away from the presence of God, but the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. So what's he saying? Jonah, I'm still here. <laughs> You're not out of my presence yet. I'm still here. And this was a storm that God himself put into place. This was a terrible storm, very unlikely that these sailors had ever experienced a storm like this. And we can see that be, as we go further, the, 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 the size and the, and the panic that they are experiencing on the ship. This is not a normal storm that they have gone through. But this is a storm where the waves are beginning to tear and break apart the ship. And if you think, you've, think of yourself on this ship as the waves are crashing in and, and twisting the boat as the ship lap begins to separate and starts to splinter and maybe a couple leaks are, are coming on the boat, this is not a good situation. But God causes this storm to go on the ship that Jonah has just boarded to go to Tarshish. In verse 5, what we see here is in the mariners, they were afraid and every man cried out to his God, and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. As we see the reaction here, this is something that, this, these were actions of desperation. They're throwing out all the cargo, everything they could possibly can in order to continue to survive so the ship will not go down and that they will not die. And in their desperate attempt, every man is crying out to his God. These are apparently pagan sailors, and there's many gods that are worshipped by these many different men on the boat, but they are in desperation. They are praying to their, their gods, their false gods, and they're acting and doing everything they possibly can to survive. The world is going, around, going down around them, and they are panicking, doing everything they possibly can to save the ship. But where do we find Jonah. As we continue in verse 5, it says, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Fast asleep. How in the world do you sleep in a ship that is getting busted up by the waves? I don't know. I assume this is a pretty big boat. It had a big journey to go on. But I don't know how big it was, and I don't know. I don't, I've been on too many big boats, but I can imagine if the waves are in the conditions that we're seeing here, it's not going to be the easiest thing to sleep in. But we find Jonah asleep. But what's, what's amazing to me is that we don't find, not only is Jonah asleep whenever, the, whenever there's a storm outside, but we find that Jonah is comfortable enough 
to find a place to sleep when he is willfully disobeying and refusing to go where God has called him. He has absolutely no fear of God. He is comfortable in having no fear of God, and he absolutely has zero concern for the world to whom Jesus or God has sent him to go preach. And he's able to sleep very, very soundly. When it comes to, comes to us in our day and age, we live in a generation where the world is just crashing down around us. It's going down. We live in a world of chaos where sin is celebrated and continually encouraged. And those who speak out against it and speaking the truth of the word of God are being condemned. The world is going down around it, but many Christians find it very easy to go sleep at night. A lot of Christians feel it very easy to to refuse and to disobey God whenever he directly commands us to preach the gospel to the lost and dying world, and we don't do it, yet we are finding ourselves very comfortable and able to sleep at night in our disobedience. But Jonah, finding himself asleep, running from the very presence of God, he has caused the storm to come upon the ship, Not only does he have no concern or fear of God, he has no concern to the people to whom God has called him to go preach. He has no concern for the people who are actually on the boat with him. In verse 6, what do we see? It says, that so the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. It's like every man on the boat has already prayed to their God, and apparently their God has not been offended by them, so maybe you could get up and you could pray to your God, and maybe this storm will cease to happen. What do you think would have happened if Jonah would have prayed and repented and said, I'll go to Nineveh? The storm probably would have ceased. If it's the God who who he thinks he is, remember in in chapter 4 and verse 2, He knows that God is a merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and who relents doing harm. If he would have just prayed at that moment, I believe believe that the sea would have ceased. But however, he did not. And as the storm continues, in verse 7, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, and we may We may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And so they cast the lots, and the lot fell rightly on Jonah. Just on a side note here, if any of you have this casting lots thing that's found throughout the Bible figured out, let me know. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if it's necessarily a vote. I don't know if they're throwing bones like the voodoo queens or they're rolling dice. I don't know, but we find pagans doing it. We find, we find, the, uh, we find men of God doing it in the book of Acts where they voted for Matthias. As, it almost looks like a vote, but I don't see the Roman soldiers having a business meeting at the foot of the cross you know, arguing over Jesus' clothes. I don't see that happening. So I don't, I don't really know. I don't know if God's hand was in this and, and the lot rightly fell on Jonah, but however it happened, whether it's coincidence or whatever, when they casted lots, they rightly fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Now, they didn't know anything about Jonah But the one thing that they did know is that he came to the port in Joppa. He was looking for a boat to go to Tarshish, and he was going to Tarshish for the reason of running from the presence of the Lord. The sailors knew that he was running from the presence of the Lord. They may not have known the exact God to whom he was worshiping or or the God from whom he was running, but they did understand that. If you just take a look in verse 10, 
And the second half, it says, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had already told them. But now, after the lot fell on Jonah, they're, wanting to, they're really probing him for some information. Who are you? What do you do? What is your job? Where are you from? Help us figure out what's happening here. And then verse 9, he answers. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I serve the God of Israel, the God that you've probably heard about, the God who is very well known and famous for setting his children free from Pharaoh, who defeated the Pharaoh army, who split the Red Sea and led them cross on dry land, the God who, who fed them and provided for them during the wilderness, the guy who crossed them over Jer- Jericho and conquered, and conquered um, or not Jericho, but the River Jordan to conquer Jericho. This is the God who has been with the children of Israel and given them success and victories over and over and over again. You mean to tell us that's the God that you are running from? And they had an understanding of that because the verse 10 tells us, as then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, why have you done this to us? Why have you chosen to be disobedient to the creator of all things and hop on our boat and bring this trouble upon us too? What are we going to do? And then they said to him, in verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you? that the sea may be calm for us. What can we do to you so the sea will become, become calm for us? For the sea was growing more temptuous. So this storm is getting worse and worse and worse. So the longer that Jonah is refusing to repent and to say, I will go preach, is gradually getting worse. And we see the voice of God speaking to Jonah, not audibly, but he was just showing, Jonah, you are not out of my presence. I'm still here. I'm still here. You're not going anywhere. And so at this point, we should see that maybe he would have some concern for the people on the boat and just go ahead and repent and say, God, I will go to Nineveh. But that's not what we see. In verse 12, what we find here is that Jonah said, throw me into the sea. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. Jonah's expectation wasn't that the sea would become calm for him because he knew he was in disobedience. He understood that the sea uh, and, and the storm that they were in was because of him. As we continue to read, he says, says, For I know that this great temptest is because of me. He says, The sea will become calm for you. Now, looking at the, uh, in, uh, the circumstances that we're seeing here with the sea, it's very unlikely that anyone would even think that they could survive swimming in such the condition, right? I mean, these, these sailors are trying to do everything they can possibly do and to stay on the ship. As we see a little bit further in verse 13, they actually try to get back to land, but the storm will not let them get there. From what I think, this is Billy thinking, that whenever Jonah was saying, pick me up and throw me into the water, he was saying, I would rather die than repent. I would rather you pick me up and throw me into the water and that I die rather than repent and do what God has called me to do. There's no way that he could have sw- swam back if the conditions would have continued the, the way they were. But he didn't want any part of that. He was saying, look, just throw me off and it'll become calm for you. 
Verse 13, as we continue, it says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more temptuous against them. They didn't like the idea of throwing the prophet of God into the water, did they? Okay, that's, that's a good idea. Let's put that in our back pocket. We're going to try to get to land. But however, as, as hard as they tried to get back to land, God is still saying, Jonah, I'm still here. I'm still here. You are not out of my presence, and you are not coming back to land. In verse 14, it says, Therefore they cried out to the Lord. Now the, the, uh, the sailors, the mariners of the ship, they are now recognizing that this storm is produced by the very hand of an almighty, powerful creator God. And now the, 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 the sailors are now crying out to the one true God. And they're saying, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're saying, okay, Jonah, we're going to take you up on your offer. We're going to try, but God, please don't hold us accountable for this. God, please don't do this. And so they picked Jonah up, verse 15, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So as Jonah had requested, they threw him overboard, and the sea became calm. And the sailors had already recognized that by the hand of God, the storm had come upon them. But after throwing Jonah overboard, they recognized it was the very hand of God that stopped the storm. It was a miraculous event, probably something that they've never seen before, how a storm can come on so suddenly and stop immediately as they did what the prophet of God instructed them to do, throw me overboard. And immediately, what, what do we see? The reaction. In verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice, and they took vows. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they took vows. Notice I don't know exactly what Jonah's doing at this point. And I don't know if the men are really concerned with what Jonah is doing, except for if he's trying to swim back to get back on the boat, they may be a little hesitant. But however, immediately from what we understand, after, this, after the storm begins to cease and the sea ceases to be raging, the men turn to the one true God they reject the pagan gods that they were worshiping and praying to earlier, and they have given themselves over to the one true great God and creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of Israel, the, the God from whom Jonah is running. And they offer sacrifices and they take vows. Now at this point, you would think Jonah would be repentant, right? Apparently not. Now Jonah was in this sea that is now calm, yet he still has not cried out in repentance. And so we see the next step here in verse 17, and God showing himself to be ever-present in Jonah's rebellion. He says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Can you imagine the misery of being in the belly of a whale or a fish for three days and three nights. That's horrible. Some hotels are miserable for one night. Can you imagine what it was like to be in the stomach of an ocean-dwelling animal of some sort, whether it's a whale or whether it's a, or whether it's a fish, I don't know, but just some fun facts about some really big things that are in our ocean. 
Now the blue whale is the biggest animal that we have discovered. Okay, that's the one that we know about, but it's huge, right? It is possible for, you know, a fish to swallow someone, you know, inside the natural forces that we see in here, but I do believe this is a miraculous hand, but just kind of bragging on God on how, how big our God is when we look at these animals, just quickly, you know, it's estimated that 2,200 pounds of food can go into the stomach of a blue whale. That's plenty of room for a 200-pound man, right? Plenty of room. You know, blue whales are simply enormous. The blue whale heart is the size of a car. It's huge. And that, 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 um, that heart pumps 10, no, not uh, 10 tons, but 20,000 pounds of blood through the body of a blue whale. 10, no, 20,000 pounds of just blood. It's just a massive, massive creature. And the blue whale aorta, the main vessel, is big enough for a grown man to crawl through. Okay, just think about the tunnels at McDonald's playground, okay? That's the pipeline for the heart to pump. It's just an amazing creation that we live in and we get to experience and how great and how big our God is. But regardless whether it was a blue whale or whether it was a smallmouth bass that God prepared, I don't care. This is the, hand, this is the working of God. Okay, God prepared this fish to swallow Jonah. Why? Because Jonah failed to be obedient in the first place and he is very resistant to repenting and saying, God, I will do what you have called me to do. Now, before we get into chapter 2, which we'll start next week, what can we take away from what we have just read and kind of gone through in the book of Jonah in the first chapter? Well, the first thing I really want us to observe and learn about God in this is that we have a God that is more gracious than we could ever imagine. A God who will extend his grace to his people, to the world, in order that we may become right with him. He is so patient with each and every one of us. Think about it, God's grace to the children or the people of Nineveh. Whenever he calls Jonah to go preach the word to Nineveh, the enemy of his chosen people, why do you think he did that? Do you, think that God, that, do you think that God, whenever he looked at Nineveh and their wickedness had come before him, that he think that he, need, that he needed to be fair to them, to send someone to preach the gospel to them and give them an opportunity before he brought judgment upon them? Do you think he had to do that? Absolutely not. God had no obligation to send the word to them. He could have destroyed them because of their sinful behavior. But however, God was gracious he says, I'm going to send the prophet of God to tell you to repent. Stop it. Don't do this anymore. He didn't have to send a prophet of God, but he could have judged them according to their sinful behavior. But he was gracious and patient. He said, I will extend grace to you and send a prophet to you with the word in hopes that you may repent. Secondly, also Jonah. <laughs> we, see the, we see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace with Jonah. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh, at that very first step towards Joppa that he went, God could have struck him dead justifiably because you were disobeying a direct order from your great God and creator. Grace. He got on the boat. Grace. He didn't pray to his God and repent. Grace. He got swallowed up by a fish. And if you don't think that's an extension of God's grace... Remember, he could have killed Jonah immediately, justifiably. 
but yet he chose to sustain Jonah's life for the purpose for which he was called to go preach to Nineveh. The men on the boat, God extended grace to them. They were pagan men. And even in the times of, of trouble and despair, as they were crying out to a false god in, within his creation, God extends grace to them. And he shows the mighty, powerful hand of God to them. And they turn to him. And they offer sacrifices and took vows. So the first thing I want us to see whenever we look at the book of Jonah is God's grace and how amazing it is. And if you really think about God's grace, the fact that any of us are still alive is an illustration of God's grace. It's a great illustration for the wages of sin is death. And I have earned that death. God's grace is so amazing. And we don't want to take advantage of this, as Jonah may have been doing. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid that we do such a thing. Absolutely not. We don't want to do that thing because what we find the second truth I want us to find here. God's grace coupled, is coupled with God's loving hand of correction and discipline. Obviously, Jonah was trying to escape from the very presence of God, but God shows him the fact that there is, that is an impossible task for you to do. And we see the loving, disciplinary hand of God up on Jonah. As soon as he hops on the boat, he brings a storm upon him. And then when he continues to refuse, he brings a fish to swallow him whole, and he leaves him in there for three days and three nights. That is, it's not fun for Jonah, okay? This is a miserable time of discipline that God is putting upon his prophet because of his disobedience. And he's trying, and he's not wanting to kill him. He's being gracious and keeping him alive, but he wants to turn him back and redirect him to get back on the path that God has laid for him, which is to go to Nineveh and preach. So not only do we see the great grace of an almighty, powerful, loving God, but we see the love of God being expressed in his discipline towards his children. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, it tells us, For whom the Lord chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The disciplinary hand of God upon my life is a reaffirming, is a reassuring fact that I belong to him. It says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily to be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them but for our profit and we may be partakers of his holiness now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present okay it's miserable i will say running from god puts you in a place of misery that's no fun just as it is for jonah he's now been he's now been thrown out into the to the stormy weather and now he's been swallowed by a fish which will we continue later it's miserable for him, and it's painful for him, but nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who are willing 
to heed the discipline, okay, and learn from it, it will be a fruit of righteousness for you. So the book of Jonah, for us, it should, it should act as, as a warning to each and every one of us. Whenever God has clearly spoken through his word to us and what we are to do in our position and our purpose in life, as we live here on this earth, his earth, we need, to re- we need to receive this as a warning to be obedient to the very word of the Lord. If not, you're going to get swallowed by a fish. Not really. I can't guarantee what will happen, but I can guarantee if you are a son or a daughter of the greatest, highest king and the king of kings, the hand of discipline will come upon you to redirect you to where God is fully calling you to serve and to do what he wants you to do. And lastly, not only do we observe God's grace and not only do we observe God's loving, corrective hand and discipline here, but we can also see God's sovereignty and how he's able to work his hand in and all through this, even in the disobedience of his prophet. Even when we are acting foolishly, God can take our actions and bring about some of the greatest good that we can see. His ability to work out good even in our disobedience. Jonah disobeyed God, and God brought the storm. I believe it was God's perfect will for Jonah to hear the word from the Lord, go to Nineveh, and go directly to Nineveh. Go directly to Nineveh. Don't pass go. God didn't tell him to go to Joppa and head to Tarshish. No, he said, I want you to go directly to Nineveh. That was God's perfect will for him. But in his disobedience, we find Jonah going down to Joppa, getting on a boat with pagan men. He sends a storm. And God knew that the storm wasn't going to convince Jonah. God knew that. He's an all-knowing God. He knew that the storm was not going to convince Jonah to repent. But it would put him in the sea, in a tempestuous sea, and it would put him in a circumstance that the men would throw him overboard and that he would be swallowed by the fish that was prepared for him. But the circumstance of the storm was used to convict the sailors to leave their pagan gods and to turn to the one true God. God's perfect will for Jonah was to go straight from Galilee to Nineveh. But yet in his disobedience, God used that to bring a fleet of men to him. And still Jonah hasn't repented. We still find him in the sea swallowed by a fish. Now, Romans 8, 28 definitely tells us that, and we know that all things work together for the good to those that love God and those to, to those who are called according to his purpose. God can take some of the greatest tragedies and bring them for the greatest good. He can work all of that out. As a sovereign, all-knowing God, he has the ability to do that, even in our disobedience, even in our sinfulness, God can bring about good things. In fact, you know, God has actually taken the absolute greatest tragedy that there has ever happened and turned it into the greatest good that any of us could experience. How so? Well, when he was the, when we find when the only good and perfect and truly innocent person who ever stepped on foot of the earth was crucified, he was murdered. 
and the sacrificial death of Christ and his resurrection, that horrible tragedy that happened, an innocent man shedding his blood, and through the death and burial and resurrection of the purest, holiest being who was wrapped in flesh and dwelt among us, because of what he did, we can experience the greatness of God's goodness in receiving his gift of grace through repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God is an amazing God. God is such a gracious God, extending grace to all mankind and being very patient with us, directing his children through the loving hand of correction as we choose to be disobedient to him, as he continues to lead us back to him, back to him. He doesn't um, he doesn't want us to continue on that path, but he wants to give us what is best for us, and that is to get back on a path in a right relationship with him. And he does that all through his sovereign power and knowledge and ability. This morning, as we prepare for our invitation this morning, I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you as we've gone through the first chapter of the book of Jonah. But this morning, as we continue to reflect on what we have heard, I pray that you've not just seen Jonah and a storm and sailors and a great fish. But what we have seen as revealed in Scripture, a holy and a righteous God that holds the very power of life and death in his very voice. And he exercised great mercy and grace towards man and this world because of his love for us and his desire for us to be obedient to him for our own benefit and the salvation of others. Let's stand and let's prepare this time for invitation. If the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning, it's time to do business with him as we pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for this day and the wonderful grace that each and every one of us have an opportunity in which we can partake. God, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We, we thank you so much that you don't leave us alone to our own sinful behavior, Father, but your presence is ever with us, correcting us and bringing us back into your arms. Father, may we bow before you, recognizing who you are and what you have declared from us. And Father, may we be obedient to you in the fear of you, respecting you. Above all else, Father, honoring what you've called us to do. God, we want to thank you for Jesus. Amen.